0: This weekend's message is from Tyler McKenzie. He's the lead pastor here at Northeast. That said, we are in part five, they told me this morning, part five of a sermon series that we're doing on Acts that we're extending through the summer. So uh, we still got several more weeks ahead of us, uh, but I, it's been a lot of fun. And for those of you who are new to the Bible or new to this series, just quick review, done this little bit every week, but it'll help you, you know, get oriented to where we're at. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books of the Christian New Testament. And they're very important to us Christians. The reason why is because they're Jesus's story. In these, we uh, see Jesus's birth. We get a quick stop off at 12 year old Jesus, right? Just a second, right? But you get an adolescent Jesus for just a moment. And then then it fast forward to like 30 year old Jesus and you get to see his, his adult life, his ministry, his death on the cross, and then his resurrection from the dead. And when he rises from the dead, it's this amazing moment well, in part because he rose from the dead, but also because he called it. Like he said, I'm gonna die and rise from the dead. And then he dies and, and rises from the dead, just like he said he would. And he has all this power, and he looks at his disciples. He's like, I'm gonna give the power to you, the spirit to you, and you're gonna go and take the kingdom to the world. And it's this amazing moment. And then all of a sudden, it just stops. The story stops. And if you're like me, you're like best cliffhanger ever because what happens next? Well, that's where Acts comes in. Acts comes in, picks up where the story left off and gives us the story of the early church. Now, I think studying like the theological framework and mindset of the early church is so important for us right now because right now the American church has come under siege, if you will, a lot of criticism. And most of it's deserved if we're being honest. And if we here at Northeast want to be a breath of fresh air, if we want to bring a faithful presence to our community and to our country during a time of church toxicity, I think a great place to start is with Jesus and his followers and Acts. Because we get to see Jesus' best friends, who probably knew his intentions for the church best, Build the church by the power of the Holy Spirit and the theological framework there can be so informative for us. So that's the series, okay? That's the series. This is a diagram that we've used to kind of describe it. We've been doing some serious Bible study as we look at the ancient church, which we will do again today for the nerds in the room. But we've also been trying to figure out how that overlaps or maps onto modern issues that the church is struggling through today. So like we've talked about, the reliability of scripture. We've asked the question, is diversity Christian? We've talked about the credibility problems in the church. Today, today, we're going to address another extremely important question. Uh, We're going to do it by looking at Acts chapter nine, Uh, back to the diagram, Acts nine. This is the story of Paul's conversion. It's a fascinating story. And uh, we'll get to that in, two time, in due time. Okay, so if you guys don't know anything about Saul, Paul, same guy, okay? But uh, he's like, outside of the Holy Spirit, the hero of Acts. The story basically follows him uh, through most of the time. Yes, it mentions Peter and, you know, other people, Philip, but Saul gets most of the airtime, right? And for good reason. So we're going to look at his moment of conversion. It's pretty powerful, but we're going to do that to answer the following question. What should the church's public posture be today? In light of that, what should the church's public posture be today in a secular age? In an age where it feels like the church has fallen out of favor. In a time where it feels like our freedoms, our privilege, and our power is being threatened. How should we respond? How should we react when it feels like the church is being targeted and diminished on purpose? There is a culture war. How should we engage in the fight. What should our public posture be? That's what we're going after today. Now I'm going to tell you exactly what I believe our posture should be at the end of the message today, after we talk about Paul and his conversion and all that. But before I tell you what it should be, I want to start today by telling you what I believe our public posture shouldn't be. And I wanna do that by directly addressing um, a version, better, better, a perversion of Christianity that has become quite popular among many churches like ours. And we have to be careful and we have to directly call it out because this perversion of Christianity just comes so naturally to us. It's like the knee-jerk, vindictive, vengeful response of our selfish heart. So we have to call it out to make sure it's not us and actively resisted as a church, Northeast. Okay, th- this perversion of Christianity is what I would call culture war Christianity. Culture war Christianity. And bottom line, here's my summary on that, and I'm going to describe it in a little more detail for you. I believe culture war Christianity is an unChrist-like, uncross-shaped corruption of our faith because it prioritizes winning over witness, power over piety, protecting the 99 over reaching the one, and self-preservation over selfless love. It's Crusader Christianity, not cross-shaped Christianity. And it sees the dissident, it sees the outsider as an enemy to fight rather than a neighbor to love. And that ain't Jesus, y'all. So we have to resist it. Culture war Christianity is something that uh, it's kind of hard to define, but you know it when you see it. So I want to give you five traits that I think are common among culture war Christians. Okay? And we need to look ourselves in the mirror and ask, is this me? And we also need to look kind of our tribes and, and you know, kind of the, some of the Christians that we associate ourselves with right square in the eyes and say, is that them? Just, we just need to be honest. So here's trait number one. Uh, I found that culture war Christians, one, have a warfare mindset, have a warfare mindset. We are soldiers, we're in a battle, there's an enemy and we have to take them down. We have to defeat the enemy. In fact, you'll hear culture war Christians say things like this, we're at war. We are at war. Lots of battle imagery and battle language. Put on the armor of God. That's their favorite verse. (laughs) Onward, Christian soldier, favorite song. And always the threat level among culture war Christians is DEFCON 1. Like all times, the soul of Christianity, the soul of America, the soul of the church, the future of the next generation is at stake. And the reason why they constantly feel this, like temperature is always high, is because they have mistaken the power, privilege, and favor of Christianity popularly with the actual favor of God. And the two aren't always the same thing. Like if, if we lose the culture, then, then Christianity's lost. That's not, that's not necessarily true, according to scripture. Here's what else you hear him say. We need leaders and laws to protect us, as if God can't protect himself. And the emotional drivers here are, are what I would call uh, wartime emotions. It's either aggression or fear fight or flight just depending on how insecure or confident you feel at any moment cultural war christianity requires an enemy for sustainability that's why these uh, groups of christians are so hyper focused on what they're against rather than what they're for just obsessed with it um it allows ends to justify unchristian means because kill or be killed this is war here got to go for the greater good lesser of two evils lots of that rationalizing happening And uh, it's sustained ultimately by manipulative politicians, pundits, and pastors because ain't nothing raise money or synergizes and grows an audience quite like a wartime crisis. So they'll play it up. Uh, I I recently heard a a culture war Christian leader, very prominent leader, um, say this recently. He he was asked, uh, what do you do about Jesus's command to turn the other cheek? This is what he said. He said, well, you only got two cheeks. Or in other words, he was implying, there's a limit to which I actually have to obey Jesus. And it's only this far. That's the warfare mindset. Does any of this sound familiar to you? This is cultural world Christianity. We got to resist it. Okay, here's the second big trait. Second. Uh, culture war Christians treat those outside of their little Christian tribe with hostility. Basically, you just get this vibe of like judgment and hostility and suspicion the whole time. And this isn't just directed at at, uh, non-Christians, it's also directed at Christians too, who believe differently. Well, let's start with the non-Christians first. Their mindset is this. We must wage war against the outsiders because they're trying to secularize our churches or disempower Christianity, corrupt our way of life, deconvert our children, and so this is a battle. Now, the hostility is almost unnoticeable at first because it begins with this word I put up there, disengagement. You you, You hear things like, well, we just don't associate with those people or we just don't go to those places or we just don't participate in those things. And for the record, disengagement to a certain degree is good for the Christian. So this seems innocuous at first. Now, let's not forget who Jesus surrounded his dinner table with regularly, all right? He's eaten with the tax collectors and the sinners, but disengagement can also be a practice in holiness to a certain degree. The problem, though, is that disengagement often devolves into this next word here, isolation. Isolation. We completely cut ourselves off from the non Christian world and we create our own little cultural ar- enclaves with our own cultural mediums. We have Christian media and Christian entertainment and Christian education and Christian businesses and Christian this and Christian that and Christian this and Christian that. Completely cutting ourselves off from the world. Okay, so if you grew up in a church like me, You were taught that as Christians, we should be in, not of the world. Anybody heard that before? Christians should be in, not of the world. Culture war Christians suck the in out of it, and they're just not of the world. You see the difference? Now, uh, this is where it gets really bad. The problem uh, with isolating yourself for too long is that you totally disconnect yourself with the other with the enemy or with those who aren't like you. And when you're totally disconnected with them, you can't empathize with them, you don't know them, you stop loving them, and you begin to believe the worst about them. It can get even conspiratorial, right? Which is why isolation devolves into this last word here, a desire for total domination. This is where you see raw political power start to get leveraged because we have to enforce what we think on those people because we know what's best for them. This is the war we wage. Now, again, I would, um, would, would you know, suffice to say that there's not many, Christian out, or not many non-Christian outsiders here, probably some of you, but not a lot of you. So let me just go ahead and warn you, they come after the insiders as well. Here's the mindset for, for the insiders. We must purge the insiders who compromise. You ever been called a compromiser before? You're compromising. They question your integrity, right? If you're not totally with us on all fronts, well, then, then you must be against us. How, how can we trust you? This starts with suspicion. If you disagree with them, even on periphery beliefs, they're suspicious of you. You're on a slippery slope. They'll say, anybody ever been told you've been on a slippery slope? Every week I get that. You're, you're on a slippery slope there, buddy. Careful right? And then slippery, slope, passive aggressive suspicion devolves into expulsion. They push you out of the community or they leave your community. And then expulsion oftentimes devolves into downright damnation. I don't even know if you're saved anymore. May God have mercy on your soul. You laugh, you laugh, but there would be a lot of folks who look at all the sinners of the Northeast Christian church and wonder where we're all going someday. Third trait, uh, culture war Christianity presents beliefs as as an uncompromising package deal. It's an uncompromising package deal. Christianity is way more than the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. It's way more than Jesus died, buried, and risen from the dead. No. Their essentials box is huge. Lots in it. And it's also weird because their pet beliefs go in it as well. And you got to buy it all. All of it. Even if you disbelieve one of like the weird periphery secondary beliefs, you're, it's a package deal. You've got to buy our way of baptizing and our view of communion and the worship service and also the way we read Genesis 1 through 3 and the way we read Revelation and the way we vote. That's always an important one. And our ecclesiology, our eschatology, our angelology, demonology, bibliology, radiology, zoology, proctology, all of it goes into the box. And you've got to be with us or else you're out. Oh, and here's something you'll find. You know what else always goes in their box? Whatever the package beliefs are of the political party they identify with. That's in the box too. And it's usually not nuanced. It's usually Republican. It's in the box. Or Demi- it's in the box. This is why people will say I don't know how they can vote that way and be a Christian. It's because the political party is in the box. Fourth trait Fourth, culture war Christianity presents their interpretations of Scripture as authoritative. As authoritative. Now, um, I want you to hear me loud and clear here. At Northeast, we believe Scripture is authoritative, no doubt. But we do so recognizing that our interpretations of Scripture may not be. This is called humility. It's very Christian. And it's something that we should acknowledge as 21st century sinners. We are limited by our sin. We are limited by our cultural distance and how perfect our interpretations will be. So we should hold them with humility. It's humility. You realize we are like 1,900, 2,000 years removed from the youngest documents in the New Testament. And they were written by people On the other side of the world, who speak different languages, lived in a totally different cultural context. I mean, different governmental system, different understanding of family and and family values and uh, gender roles, medicine, science, technology. Jesus and the gang might as well have been living on a different planet than us. So it it, it takes a tremendous amount of study in archaeology and in history and philosophy and sociology and so much more to even begin to be able to put yourself into that first century world. And most of us aren't scholars, right? So, So we should just understand there's lots of cultural distance there and hold our interpretations humbly. Oh, by the way, here's what many scholars will tell you. I'm not a professional scholar, but I did spend seven years uh, in theological training. And this is what I found personally and what my, my teachers would tell you. They would tell you that the more you learn about the first century world and the more you study the language and the scriptures, the more you realize how little you know. Now, add on to that the fact that we are all sinners capable of great self-deception. We are so good at taking the Bible and using it to justify our own desires or politics rather than to inform our desires and politics. And, uh, well, there you have it. That's how we can get so sideways. We should have that sort of humility. Culture war Christians usually don't, which leads me to number five. Number five, this is closely associated with number four. Uh, five, Culture war Christians rarely admit they're wrong rarely admit it rarely because it's a war it's a zero-sum game man I'm either gaining ground or losing ground so I have to deflect it when I'm wrong or deny it when I'm wrong even when the evidence is stacked against me it's fake news or they're or they're misinterpreting uh, you know what my actual motives were or or this is one of my favorite ones they'll spin it into a persecution they'll cry persecution culture war Christianity has a raging persecution complex when they're not actually persecuted, at least not in the grand scheme of global persecution. But you'll you'll hear it often. I mean, Jesus Jesus said the world hated him and so it'll hate us as well. Jesus does actually say things like that, right? He does. The problem is, is that with culture war Christians, nine times out of 10, when they're reading scripture, they read themselves as Jesus, or as the good guy, as the hero, as the prophet as the sufferer for the faith, rather than the sinner. And I would suggest to you that the proper reading of scripture, nine times out of 10, should be us reading ourselves as the sinner in need of a savior. That's the story's about. We're the Pharisee. We're the bumbling disciple. We're the Samaritan woman at the well, the adulterous woman about to be stoned. We're Judas the betrayer, Peter the denier. Saul the persecutor, we're the crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, not the savior on the cross. We'll get it twisted. No, now, even worse than the persecution complex, they'll go one step further and they'll sometimes they'll hide it. The culture where Christian will know that they're wrong, but they'll hide it. They'll gather their, their spiritual family, they'll gather their institution, and they'll say, We just need to keep this internal. For the sake of the institution. For the sake of the gospel, the witness, we need to keep this among the family ranks. And this is how in churches, hundreds of women or children get abused. This is how celebrity pastors who are corrupt stay in their thrones for far too long. Because somewhere along the way, we believe that God would bless deception more than confession and repentance. What culture war Christianity will do to you? It's a quick summary. Culture war Christianity, once again, just want to be clear on this, is an unChrist-like, uncross-shaped corruption of our faith because it prioritizes winning over witness, power over piety, protecting the ninety-nine over reaching the one, and self-preservation over selfless love. It's Crusader Christianity, not cross-shaped Christianity, and it sees the dissident as an enemy to fight rather than a neighbor to love. And that ain't Jesus. Amen? And by the way, it ain't Paul either. Eventually. Eventually. Now, let me give you Paul's track record 2,000 years later, uh, for those of you who don't know, because this guy's is pretty, pretty important. He kind of changed the world. First, uh, in my humble opinion, Paul, uh, you can go to the rap sheet here, is uh, the, the most influential Christian leader to ever live. Ever. He wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament documents. In these documents, it explains core doctrines that like everything that we believe is founded on, like justification, sanctification, resurrection. And he explains them with power and clarity. Uh, He traveled the Mediterranean Rim planting churches in some of the largest cities. Uh, We don't know exactly how many churches he planted, but I read one guy that estimated approximately 20 this week, made a pretty good case. He was actually persecuted, actually and Acts tells us because of his teaching, he reached all the residents of Asia. That's how good he was. He led the church in Gentile inclusion. Thank God for that because we're the Gentiles. And uh, he also preached in places like Athens, Tyrannus' hall, uh, before Governor Felix, Governor Festus, King Agrippa, and perhaps even Caesar, Emperor Nero during his time before he was martyred for his faith. This dude's a real one, y'all. <laughs> Paul legend. But here's what you should know. Before he became Paul, the great apostle, he was Saul, the great persecutor of the church. Now, throw our culture war Christian top five back up there again, our little trace here. And I know this is kind of like an anachronistic projection back on Paul, of something going on in our culture today. But I would suggest to you that Paul embodies these traits well. It it maps really well on each other, okay? Paul had this sort of warfare mindset. He treated those outside of his tribe with hostility. He had this sort of zealous, hard-headedness about him. He even conspired with the political leaders that be during his day. Paul is eventually presented by Acts as the protagonist of the story, but he starts as the antagonist. There's only one thing that changes him, though, Now, we'll get to that in a second. I want to now show you the pre-Christian Paul's bio. We looked at post-Christian Paul's bio, and we love to remember him like that. Influential Christian leader, does all the things, right? I wanna rewind back though, and before he becomes a Christian, I wanna show you who he was. Paul, by the way, is glad to tell you exactly who he was before Jesus. There are four times, three times in Acts, one in Galatians, where he tells his conversion story. Several other times, where he admits who he was before he found Jesus. So he's, he's glad to tell you, and I just wanna let you in on it here. Look, Acts 22 is one of the examples where uh, he shares his conversion story. Um, he gives us some, some salient details. So he says first, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia. Born in Tarsus, born in Tarsus. So first, uh, Paul tells us, I was born in, in, in Tarsus. Now, um, back in this time period, where you were from meant a lot about who you were. Jesus was from Nazareth. What did people think about that? Not much. But Saul, on the other hand, he was from Tarsus. This would have been like, uh, say, like saying, uh, I'm, I'm from Cambridge. Because Tarsus was one of the intellectual centers of the world. In fact, a Strabo, uh, he was a first century geographer and historian. He traveled to Tarsus around the year 20. This would have been approximately the time when Saul lived there and he took little travel notes on what he noticed when he was in Tarsus. This is what he wrote about it, pretty fascinating. Uh, Strabo writes, "Uh, the people at Tarsus have devoted themselves so eagerly, not only to philosophy, but also to the whole round of education in general, that they have surpassed Athens, they've surpassed Alexandria, or any other place that can be named, where there have been schools and lectures of philosophers but it is so different from other cities that there, the men who are fond of learning, the smart guys are all natives. And foreigners are not inclined to sojourn there, to travel there. Neither do these natives stay there in Tarsus, but they complete their education abroad. And when they've completed it, they're pleased to live abroad. And few come back home. So Strabo tells us two things here. Um, We're gonna come back to him. One, he tells us, that Tarsus is smartville, like smarter than Athens, smarter than Alexandria, in his humble opinion, okay? And second, he says, smart people don't come to Tarsus, they're made in Tarsus, and then they leave, go complete their education elsewhere, and stay. Let's see how that maps onto Paul's story, back to Acts 22. Paul says, Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city. When he's talking, he's in Jerusalem for the record. So he says, brought up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, prominent Pharisee during that time, educated strictly according to our ancestral law, being zealous for God, just as all of you are today. So Paul says, born in Tarsus, but straight out of Jerusalem. where he's from. And that actually maps perfectly Onto how Strabo describes Tarsus. Probably about the age of 14, 15, after Paul was educated there, he travels to Jerusalem for his Pharisaic training under Gamaliel, and he stays there. Now, real quick, who were the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were a, uh, a sect of Judaism that time, of uh, philosophical leaders who interpreted the law for the people, and they were extremely Popular among the common folk. They were beloved, honestly. Uh, today, when Christians trash Pharisees, uh, oftentimes it can be very hurtful to Jewish folks because they hold the Pharisees in high regard. They do. Now, Jesus obviously has bones to pick with them, but that's because of the way, uh, the way some of the Pharisees uh, took too far what they believed. So the Pharisees believed that in order, to, uh, in order to hearken the blessing and favor of God on the people of Israel once again, The people needed to turn back to the law, repent and purify themselves. Which actually sounds a whole lot like the Old Testament prophets. We need to turn back to the law, keep the law. And if we keep the law, God's favor will come back in a nutshell. Only problem though, and this is where they get sideways sometimes with Jesus is that some of the Pharisees would take the law and then to make sure they didn't break the law, they would create laws around the law. And then they would create laws around the laws, around the law, just to make sure you never come close to actually breaking the law. Jesus has a really interesting conversation with him about Sabbath one time that you should go and read. And this was Saul. Now last piece here, Saul was trained by Gamaliel. Why does that matter, Tyler? Well, you can read about him in Acts chapter five. He has this interesting moment where he pops in and disappears, but um, there, there were two schools of Pharisees Back then, nerd alert, two schools of Pharisees in in the first century there was the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. Hillel and Shammai. And the reason why Gamaliel was held in such high regard was because many believed he was, uh, uh, many scholars believe he was the son or grandson of Hillel, thus making him the leader of the school of Hillel during his time, one of the most prominent Pharisees alive on the planet Earth. Now, what's the difference between the school of Hillel and Shammai? Well, the school of Shammai were zealous. They practiced suicide politics. They were willing to bear the sword, if you will, to make sure that the heretics were shut up. While on the flip side, Gamaliel, the school of Hillel, was a bit more, uh, to use 21st century terms, liberal. A bit more peaceful, less fundamentalist, if you will. Now, why is that important, Tyler? Well, it's important because while Saul was trained in the school of Hillel by Gamaliel, he acts like he was trained in the school of Shammai because man was he ever a zealot. And this doesn't surprise me because what do people often do when it comes to their parents' upbringing or when it comes to their teachers' Uh, Teaching, They reject it. They rebel against it. This is what we see in Saul, Acts 22. uh, He says, "Uh, I persecuted the way. Persecuted the way up to the point of death by binding both men and women and putting them in prison as the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. From them, I also received letters to the brothers in Damascus and I went there in order to bind them too to bring them back to Jerusalem for punishment. Now throw our little summary slide here on, on pre-Christian Saul back up there. This is Saul the persecutor. As you've seen, he's born in Tarsus, raised in Jerusalem, a respected Pharisee, trained by Gamaliel, but what I would call, and again, anachronistic term, but what I would call a culture war zealot. He just hated the Christians. Couldn't stand them. Not only were they uneducated fishermen who didn't even belong in the same room as a guy like him, But they were taking Judaism and sullying it, defying it. They were saying that a crucified criminal was the king and the Messiah and that he had risen from the dead. They were saying that Sabbath day was no longer on Saturday, but now it was on Sunday. In fact, they were doing away with circumcision, doing away with the food laws, saying that the Mosaic law and all the prophets were fulfilled in this crucified criminal Jesus. And he had established a new covenant or a new law with only two great commandments. And they were even going as far to say that the temple, the holy place of God where his presence dwelt was defiled. And if you wanted to find atonement and forgiveness, all you had to do was go to their Jesus. It's blasphemy. This is blasphemy. Oh, and to make matters even worse, they were saying that Yahweh, the separate one, the holy one, the most high God was him. Jesus. Somebody's got to stop these people. And Paul thought he was just the guy to do it. So he gets the necessary permissions and endorsements from the high priest and the religious leaders. And as we see Acts 7 and 8, he was actually behind the very first martyrdom. History of Christianity, Acts 7, 58, the martyrdom of Stephen. It says the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, Stephen died and Saul approved. Proved of their killing him. Uh, Saul's season as a persecutor of the church lasted at least a year. Until something happened. that would change Saul forever and would change the world forever. This moment's recorded in Acts chapter nine, verses one through 22, I'm gonna read it all to you. Long passage, but world-changing story. Verse one, meanwhile Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. That's Christianity he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him, and he fell to the ground. And heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city. You'll be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but Saul no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer there in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision saying, Ananias, yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Um, Lord, I've heard of this, Saul. <laughs> I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believer's in Jerusalem, and he's here now, authorized by the leading priest to arrest, I don't know, people like me, everyone who calls upon your name. Basically, Ananias says, Are you sure, Lord? But the Lord said, Go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well, to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He regained his sight and he got up and was baptized afterward he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the one he's indeed the son of God and all who heard him were amazed and is the man who who caused such devastation among the Jesus followers in Jerusalem they asked and didn't he come here to do the same thing? the Saul's preaching became more and more powerful and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus indeed was the messiah grace grace changed the world an experience of the risen Jesus and God's grace changed Saul forever. I mean, I'm telling you, he had the warfare mindset. He was hostile to those outside the tribe. He was pridefully zealous until he saw Jesus and experienced his grace. And I would suggest to you that that is the fountainhead from which we should posture ourselves in public in this secular age, grace, God's grace. That's how we fight the culture war fight, in light of God's magnificent grace. Now, how? Why, Tyler? Well, first, because when you experience grace, it humbles you. It humbles you. If you're not humbled by God's grace, look again. Acts chapter nine, I love this detail. It says, as he was approaching uh, Damascus on his mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him and he fell to the ground. Another translation says, he fell to his knees. And I love that image. And this won't be the last time that the Lord Jesus and his grace drives Paul to his knees. Humbles him. Can can you imagine the transformation in thought that Paul goes through over the next few days? Like, okay, so he sees the light and Jesus, oh no. And like he's blinded, he doesn't eat, he doesn't drink for for three days, probably doesn't sleep. He He just prays. And then Ananias comes. And he's like, I'm speaking on behalf of Jesus. And Paul's like, oh no, okay, I'm in trouble now. But instead, and it's like, be baptized. Here's the spirit. You got a mission. It's it's all grace, y'all. Okay, so I've kind of diagrammed the transformation and thought for you. First, Saul the persecutor thinks, if you twist the truth of God, you should die. But then next, Damascus, Saul the persecutor learns, I'm the one twisting the truth of God. So, I should probably die. But then Saul the persecutor receives grace, forgiveness, salvation, the Spirit, a new mission. He receives God's lavish grace. And no wonder when writing of this conversion experience, like 30 years later, to his apprentice Timothy, he describes it like this He says, This is a trustworthy saying, Timothy. Everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm the worst but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great, what's that word? Patience, of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life, all honor and glory to God forever and ever. He's the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God, amen. That's what grace looks like. That's what you say when you experience grace. That's what we see in Paul. So maybe I could say it like this. A true experience of God's grace reminds us we are not the holy warrior, we are the worst of sinners. It reminds us we are not an example of God's righteousness, but rather of God's patience. It's Paul's words, not mine. His patience with even the worst. Okay, so you know what I think is a great test? to be able to to tell whether or not you or someone else has really internalized the humbling grace of God, you should ask them, uh, when's the last time you did something wrong, thought something wrong, said something wrong, and admitted it? And if they can't answer that quickly, they're probably not meditating on grace daily. Okay, maybe I could say it like this. Um, this is what ails the church. You understand that, right? This sort of taking of the moral high ground, this fragility and need to, to be right or at least not be the only one who's wrong. I sense it as a preacher every day because I come to church feeling this pressure to both sides everything, like every truth. You can't go after just them, you gotta, you gotta go after both of them or else they're gonna get upset or they're gonna get upset. You know, like you guys ever say, okay. So, uh, my question for you is this why? Why is that true? Why do you gotta both sides everything? What if you're wrong and they're not? it's happened before or what if you're more wrong than them or what if they're not a part of our church but you are and i'm your pastor not theirs say okay when we open god's word when we come to church we should be hungry for repentance know what the best form of self-care is repentance because sin destroys us so when we root sin out of our life it allows us to flourish that's what repentance does So I'm just done with this defensive, fragile posturing. You can't can't get the young folks without getting the old folks too. You can't get the left without getting the right. You can't get the, the white people without getting the black people. You can't get us without getting them. Give me a break. That is a heart that's backwards. That is a heart that would rather deliver blows rather than be changed conformed in the image of Christ. That's a heart where the sanctification process has probably slowed down, and that's a heart that forgot how low you were on the road to Damascus when only by God's grace, Jesus scooped you up, made you new, and gave you life. When you experience grace, it humbles you. But last, it softens you as well. It softens you. You see, when you experience God's grace, you no longer look at the outsider as an enemy. Instead, you see the outsider like God sees him. God, let me see people like you see people. It's a powerful prayer, simple. You should pray it every day. And how did God see Saul, the persecutor, the worst and first persecutor of the church? Well, he didn't see him as an enemy to eliminate. He saw him in all of his kingdom potential. In Acts 22, verse 14, Ananias speaks this truth of God over Paul. He says, this is what God thinks about you, Paul. Coming fresh off the persecution, he says, the God of our ancestors has chosen you, my brother, to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear him speak, for you are to be his witness, telling everyone what you have seen and heard. So what you waiting for, Saul? Get up, be baptized, have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. You know what the goal of the cross was? The goal of the cross was to turn enemy into friend. And the goal of cross-shaped followers of Jesus should be to do the same. We should want to see done unto others what's been done unto us. Given unto others what's been given to us. Believing that even they, even they can be changed by Jesus because even I, the worst of all sinners, has been changed by Jesus as well. Humility and grace. Bruised knees and a soft heart. That's the posture we take into the public square because of the lavish grace we received. And that's what we remember when we celebrate communion. So I can think of no better way to close our service today than by reminding ourselves of God's grace in Jesus Christ.